I'd like for you to turn to the 20th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. And I want to read verses 7 through 13. The book of Jeremiah is close to the middle of the Bible, so it's an Old Testament book. And if you'll find Psalms, which most of us can find, we'll take a right and go right through the neighborhood of Isaiah to Jeremiah, and we'll get to chapter 20. These uh, portions of Scripture that I'll be reading are part of what are called the Confessions of Jeremiah. It's really God's, uh, Jeremiah's complaint concerning the way things have turned out in life. And it's pretty relevant, really, to us. So follow with me as I read verse 7. O Lord, Thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou hast overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud, I proclaim violence and destruction. Because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then my heart, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary of holding it in. And I cannot endure it. For I've heard the whispering of many, terror on every side, denounce him. Yes, let us denounce him. All my trusted friends, watching for my fall, say, perhaps he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. Yet, O Lord of hosts, Thou who dost test the righteous, who seest the mind and the heart, let me see Thy vengeance on them. For to Thee I have set forth my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for He has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of evildoers. There are so many things in life that happen to us for which there are really no explanations, have no real rhyme or reason, the questions for which there are no answers. It's always been like that. Jeremiah grappled with this throughout his brief and tragic ministry. Why do the wicked prosper? And why do always, he asks, the treacherous thrive. And these kinds of questions just kind of tumble out of the heart of the troubled. And preachers are expected to have some explanation or answer. Sometimes I find myself trying to defend God in all kind of assuming a position that really no mortal man ever has the right to assume. For there's a kind of arrogancy, I think, in, in, a, in the attitude, it's all right, God, I'll defend you, I'll protect you. Reminds me of a, a scene from the TV sitcom, It's All in the Family. 
Archie Bunker is talking to his son-in-law, the meathead, and the meathead is a professed agnostic. And he says, Archie, if there is a God, why is there so much suffering in the world? And there is this long, awkward pause and silence, and then Archie screams, Edith, would you get in here and help me? I'm having to defend God all by myself. When the truth is, God does not need our defenses. And yet, whether we know it always or conscious of it or not, we're always calling to God to the task of why things have happened the way they've happened. Why this and why me? And God seems to be judged by so many of us. My favorite graffiti was the one on a billboard out west this huge billboard was comprised of two words, try God. And underneath it, the graffiti comprised three words, on what charges? Well, Jeremiah could think of a lot of them. Filled with disappointment and confusion, he calls God to task for having given him such an impossible mission calling him to such a difficult task. And he levels some charges against God that sound so familiar. He accuses God of having deceived him. He said, I was deceived and you are the one who deceived me. It's an astounding charge for a man to make of God. The word means to be false too, to fail to fulfill, to cause one to believe a lie. Can you believe this guy? He's telling God, you've caused me to believe a lie. You failed to fulfill a promise to me. You made so many promises and you've not kept them. You got me out on a limb and sawed it off. And Jeremiah didn't want to be a preacher in the first place. As a matter of fact, if you'll read chapter 1 of Jeremiah, he argues with God's call and God says to him, don't be afraid for I'll be with you to deliver you. And here is Jeremiah saying, what about that promise you made to deliver me? And here I am in these miserable stocks and held in prison and my back is beaten and bleeding and they're threatening to kill me. What about your promises? What happened to them? You ever felt that way? You ever felt that God made a promise to you that he never was able to fulfill? It's easy to feel that way, isn't it? What happened to Jeremiah? Well, he was believing this promise in a very superficial way. He, he, he had made some false assumptions on what God had promised. When God said, I'll deliver you, Jeremiah naturally thought that, that meant God's going to keep him from hurt. And he just thought, well, I'm going off on this heroic mission and I'll preach a word that everybody needs to hear. And God built a wall around me and set his angels in charge over me and I'll never experience hurt. God never intended for that to be that kind of promise. That was a false assumption. So he accused God of lying. The one thing God cannot do, he'll never be unfaithful to his promise. And our faith falters a lot of times because it's based upon some false assumptions and we believe God's made promises he's never made. It was at the heart of John the Baptist's problem. 
And so while he languished away in prison, finally could stand it no longer, he sent some men. You go ask that man, that Nazarene, is he really the Messiah or not? If you're really the Messiah, why don't you come out and act like one? And his concept of the Messiah was the one who would come and deliver Rome, deliver them from Roman oppression. He was based upon a false assumption. God never made that promise. And then he accused God of bullyism. If you notice what he said there in, in verse 7, he said, you have overcome me, I am overcome. Now what he's saying is this, watch this. He's saying, God, because of who you are, you just bullied your way, got your way. You've overpowered me, and I didn't have anything to say about it. You've just come, and you wanted to have your way, and so because you're God and I'm man, you just overwhelmed me and overpowered me, and you've taken away all my freedom to say anything. You ever felt that way? Of course you have. Because it's so difficult to... To, to reconcile the tension between our freedom and God's sovereignty. Well, you see, by the time we take God's sovereignty, which means God has the right to do all things, and we filter that through all the false assumptions and the doubts we have, and we pass it by all of our pain and suffering, by the time it comes out over here, what it says, God's sovereignty, what that says is that God's going to have His way and He has no feelings for our feelings. Of course we felt that way. And our concept is that somehow God, when He comes into our life, we are no longer free to have a say. He's going to narrow the limits of our living. He's going to reduce our pleasures. In short, He's going to cramp our style. And our concept of God is this great tyrant who's fearful of man's powers, this reigning monarch who's desirous to dwarf and to dominate us and to reduce us to servile supplicants. And as long as He gets His way, that's all He wants. It's a false idea of God, a tragic one. For I tell you, God is not the enemy of your freedom. He is the author of it. And He is not your rival. He is your friend. And then He accused God of being the cause that nobody liked Him. He said, because I have to preach this message that you gave me to preach, everybody hates me. Sound familiar? He said, all I've got to preach is gloom and doom. Repentance and change of heart and the judgment of God. Nobody wants to hear that. And the bottom line is, God, that nobody's repented and turned to you. They've resented and turned on me. So I get mad at God. And I'm mad at God because I look the way I look. And I get mad at God because I have no friends. And I blame God because I lost my job and can't get another one. And I'm mad at God because I work my fingers to the bones and get nowhere and other people prosper. I just am put out with Him. Did you, say, did you see The Fiddler on the Roof? What a marvelous musical. It's a story about, really, about some dialogues that God had with this dairyman by the name of Tevya. And one day, uh, Tevya says, I'm a horse. He said, God, why didn't you cause my horse to kick his shoe, lose his shoe on the day before the Sabbath? That wasn't very nice. 
He said, you've blessed me, Tevya, with five daughters. And he says that sarcastically because these girls are really giving him grief. He said, you've blessed me with five daughters and a life of poverty. But what have you got against my horse? He said, sometimes I think that when things get quiet up there, you just say to yourself, ah, I wonder what kind of mischief I can play on Otavia today. And I think sometimes that's our concept of God. When it gets up quiet up there, he looks down, he says, ah, I wonder what kind of mischief I can play on old Tidwell today. He deserves it. And he gets, now wait a minute. He, he gets blamed for everything, doesn't he? But at least Jeremiah was honest. And I think there's some experience, there's some things to learn from this experience of Jeremiah versus God. And one of them is that you can be honest with Him. Ah, yes, when we go before God, we got to put on this front. And we put on our Sunday go to meeting faces and we talk to Him in our stained glass voices. But you know, God's not intimidated by our questionings. He can take it. He's not threatened by our questions. He can, he's, he can, he can take that. And so the writers of the Bible, the writers of Jeremiah, just pass right to us this argument that Jeremiah had with God because they know that man can be honest with God about his fears and his doubts and his questions. As a matter of fact, the Bible's a lot more honest than most of us are. The Bible's a lot more honest than most religious books I read. I mean, it just comes right to the point and says, yes, a man, even in his faith, can go to God and say, why this, why me? And that's why the gospel writers could just write that in there, that incredible cry of Jesus from the cross, my God, why? I tell you, it would have been so easy, oh, so easy for the gospel writers to cover that up, afraid that it would have been an embarrassment, a threat to our faith, an embarrassment. Well, could Jesus, the Son of God, feel abandoned by God just like this prophet? Well, that's not so hard to believe, for after all, he went to the backside of hell to endure all that we endure. So when you cry, my God, why, it's not a symptom of spiritual weakness, nor is it a mark of spiritual flaws. There's a greater lesson to be learned from this case of Jeremiah versus God, and that's where I want to nail down, what I want to nail down, hear me now. There's some basis here for a man to believe. There's, a, there's some basis here for a man on which a man can build his commitment. When you read this story about Jeremiah, you just get the picture of a person who's ready to quit. He, he was. He entertained the idea of quitting. As a matter of fact, in the book of Jeremiah, on one occasion he said, Lord, would you give me a motel in the wilderness so I can get away from these Low lives, you know, that's a terrible translation. I dare you to find me one preacher that has not prayed that prayer. Would you give me a motel in the Sahara? That'd be better than staying with this group. That's what he's saying. The same ideas. 
If this is the way it works, I don't want any part of it. If this is all there is, if I'm going to give my life to God, I'm going to serve Him as best I can. I expect a little dividend on that service. I, if that's all I can get, I'm out of it. I'm gone. I'm splitting. Who hadn't thought that? What makes a man stay in there? Well, I submit to you, he's, his life was permeated with a, a transcendent purpose. This is what he said. He said, God put words in me. They went all day down into my bones. God put words in me. And when I decided that I was no longer going to remember him, and I was never going to say another word about him, my bones burned. For he was gripped with this transcendent purpose. And this transcendent purpose was that God would be glorified through his word. Now, there's a greater, more transcendent purpose than just to be comfortable. There's a greater purpose in life than to be popular and accepted. There's a greater purpose in life than to stand up and preach to the masses with a message that fits the consensus. And that transcendent purpose is that God be glorified in His Word. So whatever it takes for His Word, for His name to be glorified, whatever that takes, Jeremiah said, I'm ready for that. Can't, can't have no choice. It's like a fire inside me. See? I suppose that the one man who whose life was gripped by that transcendent purpose, as our prayer, offertory prayer, who was dynamic in his word, was the Apostle Paul. Listen. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's writing from prison. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Who cares? That's the J.B. Phillips translation. What then is the New American Standard? Who cares? If people in, find me in prison and it gives them courage to preach the gospel or if it just spurs them on out of envy and strife to take over the churches I've left behind, who cares? Look at what he said. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and that and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will keep on rejoicing. What a statement. I don't like to read things, you know, long things, but I couldn't condense this down. I did bring it with me. For some of you who are here Sunday night, I did have, I do have it. Listen to this. When you physically fetter a spirit as daring and venturesome as Paul's, what happens? Do you break it? You do if it's breakable. When you fasten him to a picked sentinel, picked member of the palace guard and change that solitary sentinel every six hours of the day and night, what happens to his dream of preaching 
more sermons and founding more churches. Do you shatter it? You do if it's shatterable. Or what happens to the calmness of his temper, the magnificence of his soul? Do you end it there? You do if it's endable. Behold, now the magnificent poise that Christ gives this man who neither fazzled, who, who is neither frazzled nor fizzled by all that he's undergoing. Really, he writes, you need not worry about me because what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. My difficulties have become doors and my thwartings have turned into thoroughfares. The character of this poise may be seen if we sum it up in two sentences. I am in nothing daunted so, as, so long as the gospel is promoted and I am in nothing daunted so long as Christ is proclaimed. That's paramount, that's transcendent. To be changed to a guardsman, that by comparison is nothing. I love it. And I tell you, a person who is not gripped this morning by the transcendent purpose of life, which is that God may be glorified in him, will quit when the going gets tough. I promise you that. Secondly, he recommitted his cause. That's what he says there in that last verse. He recommitted his cause in the midst of adversity. Now he said, as far as I can tell, nobody likes me. That's hard to figure out when you're in a prison and in and, and times he was in. As far as I can tell, my family has is, is turned on me. He said, even there is terror on all sides. He said, even the walls are bugged. I don't have anybody to trust. And we find that man at a point of the deepest despair. Who can he trust? Nobody except God. And he's ready to walk off, walk away from his call. And that's a pretty dangerous thing. Let me tell you, when a prophet walked away from his call as a prophet, it meant his death. It's like jumping out of a 20-story building. He said, I don't have anybody to trust. I don't have anybody I can believe in. Even my friends that I eat dinner with turned on me, and the walls are bugged. And in the midst of it, watch this, in the midst of it, he recommitted his cause to Christ, to God. Now, it's pretty easy to rededicate, re recommit your cause to God when, it's, when things are going well. But the recommitment of one's life to God in the midst of adversity is the winner. That's the winner. See, I Schofield said, I never prayed with Dwight L. Moody, but what he didn't pray, that God would re-sign my commission. Some of you need to have your commission re-signed this morning, don't you? In the midst of adversity, to say to God, yeah, it's been tough, but I say to you, Father, I say to you, God, my commitments is as deep as it's ever been. You can count on me. Third thing he did was he praised God in the midst of adversity. That's what verse 13 says. He says, I started singing the song of praise. Now the circumstances around him did not encourage praise. They encouraged despair. It's not the circumstances of his life that encouraged praise. It was what he remembered about God that encouraged praise. And that's the essence of praise. 
The essence of praise is not thanking God for His blessing. The essence of praise is praising Him for what He is. I remembered God and I began to praise Him. And as I focused upon what He is and what He does, I took my eyes off the circumstances and I sang right in the middle of the dungeon. The essence of praise is that. In fact, the Bible talks about the sacrifice of praise. And before there can be a sacrifice, there has to be a death. And so Jeremiah said, I died to my own comforts. I died to my own ambitions. I died to what I wanted in life. And I died to my dreams of, of being accepted and powerful as a prophet. And I brought this sacrifice and I praised you in the dungeon. That's how he kept going. One last thought. It involves learning to live in adversity. Learning to live in adversity. Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I'm in therewith to be content. I have learned it. It's something I've learned. In Flossenburg camp, army camp, Dietrich Bonhoeffer died. Bonhoeffer was this German preacher put in prison by Hitler and the Nazis who died there. And in prison he did his deepest thinking and his greatest writing, the greatest books, some of the greatest books I've ever read are books by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Cheap Grace and the Koinonia Fellowship, great books. He wrote some devotionals from Flossenburg Prison that are now called Letters from Prison. And there was one letter that Jeremiah could have carried around in his inside coat pocket or in the fly leaf in the, in the pages of his Bible. He could have written it himself. It goes like this. In me there is darkness. With thee there is light. I am lonely, but thou shalt never forsake me. I am restless, but with thee there is peace. In me there is resentment, with thee there is patience. Thy ways, O Lord, are past understanding, but thou knowest my ways. All there is to it. And so Jeremiah, riding from prison, writes, I don't understand why me, why this. And I think you've dropped me out and I've fallen through the cracks and you've failed me. You're just some bully that has no feeling for my feeling. And then all of a sudden, that transcendent purpose comes to him. That knowledge of God comes to him. That praise comes to him. And he exalts, God, thou knowest all my ways. There's some of us today 
who need to make a decision in this invitation. In the early service, a young man came to say, times have been really tough for me. I want to make a new beginning with God today. I need your prayers. In the midst of tribulation, he rededicated himself to Christ. There may be some this morning who need to follow the example of that young man in the early service. You need to re-sign rather than resign. And maybe you'd want to do that today. There may be some this morning who need to come and join the church, or I know they're in this audience, there must be some who have never for the first time given their heart to life to Jesus Christ. We want to give you an opportunity to do that. Now, I'm not one who likes to extend long invitations and have a lot of hoopla about that kind of thing. But I do urge you this morning to do what God wants you to do. And, and there is such a need, such a need for people to walk, to make their way through these experiences of life to a new commitment to God. And that new commitment is the bottom line. So after we've had our prayer, our choir sings, we, by the mercies of God, invite you to come. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you have never left us without the witness of your word. And that that witness is made clear and plain day after day, week after week. It is not wisdom that we lack. It is not revelation that we lack, but courage. Give us the courage this morning to be obedient to Thee. In the desperation of our own helpless humanity, let us rest and lean upon the deliverance of Your divinity. And I pray that every decision made in this moment now will glorify you, will be what you want, you desire, what will please you. Because I ask in Jesus' name, beg it for his sake. Now in a spirit of prayer, we're going to stand and we're going to ask you to be the first one down this aisle to come today to make your decision for Christ. Stand with me and come.